Let's turn together to Malachi chapter 4. Some time ago, we began uh, a study of these uh, post-exilic prophets during the time of the return of Israel uh, to their home in Jerusalem for the rebuilding of the city and of the walls and of the temple, that God raises up these men to bring His Word to His people Uh, And we have studied through the prophecy of Haggai and then of Zechariah, and now we will be coming to the end of Malachi. So tonight we'll be considering at least what is in our English translations, Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. In the Hebrew, this is a continuation of chapter 3, so that it goes from 3.18 simply to 19 and following. Uh, And that's preferable for understanding, to be frank because these verses are clearly a continuation of the themes uh, that you guys would have considered this past Sunday night uh, with the closing verses of chapter 3. So we come now to the last words of Malachi, and they are the last words of the Old Testament, and they are the last words of God via direct revelation until John the Baptist will come on the scene preaching Uh, repentance and turning from sin and turning to Christ the Messiah in preparation for his appearance. And so let us give great consideration and take heed to these words as this is how the uh, this period of redemptive history and God's providence and care was closed. And so these words matter. It's kind of the last word. Uh, Let's pray together before we read them and we'll try to consider them. Just six short verses. Father in heaven, God, I pray that you would help me as I preach now, uh, that you would help me to think clearly and to speak clearly. God, I pray that you would help me to be faithful in all that I say to your word and to your purposes redemptively through Christ. God, if anything I say is an error, Lord, I pray that you would cause it to be uh, forgotten, that it would fall even upon deaf ears and not be heard. But uh, to the extent that uh, what I say is faithful and true, God, it's empowered by your Spirit. I pray that you would open our hearts that we might receive it. So do for us now as we read from your Word what we cannot in our sin do for ourselves. God, give us eyes that we might see. God, give us ears that we might hear. Give us hearts with humility that we might receive what you would plant deep within us from your Word now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. This is what we read. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children in the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So it ends on a somber note. It ends on a serious note. And much like 
uh, John the Baptist, who comes after Malachi, uh, comes calling the people of God to repentance and preparation for the coming of the Messiah. So too, Malachi is now calling out to a wayward and a struggling people of God in Israel that they would be brought to repentance. Uh, I listened to the sermon that Chase preached on this passage last week, and he made that very point, that he is calling the people of God to repent. He is calling the people of God to remember. This book begins by recounting the faithfulness of God who has loved them and chosen them. But it begins with their objection. God, how have you loved us? Because see, many in Israel during this time, you know, in Malachi's time, they have forgotten God in many ways. They, they have grown skeptical, as we saw even only a few weeks ago, of God's presence and the surety of God's coming and the promises of God's faithfulness. They have grown skeptical about where God is and what God is doing. God, how can you be for us? How can you love us and choose us if we now know this difficulty and this plight? Remember, they were looking around at the the nations. I think the reference is to the nations outside of Israel, the pagan nations that did not serve God, and they saw them prospering. And they began to say, man, God honors those people. Those that do evil in his sight, God holds them in high esteem, they said. So there was a a great waywardness in Israel. They had forgotten to do, forgotten, I hope you mean, understand what I mean there, not as uh, they just didn't remember, but they had chosen to disobey God's words and his commands about the types of sacrifices they were to bring. They had uh, forgotten God's commands, uh, it seemingly in, in, great, uh, in great numbers, about how they were to relate to one another in family units. And I think that's even referenced here in chapter 4 with the issue of the unity when Elijah, the, the, the forerunner, comes, bringing the families back together, bringing the hearts of fathers and children back together. But there, there was all of this turmoil in, in and among the people of God as they called um, evil good, and they called good evil, and they brought improper sacrifices, and they they, they participated in polluted worship, and all of these things. And Malachi now comes to say, regardless of what you feel, regardless of what you may think because of what you see, regardless of the existential realities and the experiential understanding that you've garnered by looking around at the nations around you and then looking at your own plight, God is coming as he promised. That's, that's, the, that's where he ends. That your feelings, to quote my buddy John, don't care about the facts. Or the facts don't care about your feelings, I think is the way he puts it. And the fact of the matter is that even when they or when we think that God is absent or that God has forgotten or forsaken or that God is not you know, working in faithfulness or steadfast love, like we read from Psalm 36, regardless of what we feel and what we think and what we see, the word of God will stand forever. That though we will be burnt up, and though we will pass away like the flowers of the field, the word of God shall remain. Every one of his promises shall be realized. His promises for blessing for those that love and revere him. His promises for destruction to those that oppose him and his kingdom. But all of the promises of God will come. 
And chapter 4, verse 1, as I mentioned, being a continuation of the verses ending chapter 3, they come to us by way of contrast. And I thought, I thought Chase was right on the money when he pointed out to you that Malachi is now turning to address these separate groups of people. There are those who are faithless and there are those who are faithful. And there is this dichotomy between them. Whether that's in Israel or between Israel and the world around them, there is this distinction between the people of God and not the people of God. So that you see there in chapter 3, verse 18, then once more you shall see this distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. That theme of contrast and distinction is where the next verse in our chapter 4 begins. For behold, a day is coming, he says, when that distinction will be realized in a way and solidified in a way that it will never have been realized and solidified before. There is coming the day when there will quintessentially be this distinction between those that love God and are prepared for and have longed for his appearing and those that will hate the day that they opposed him. And though they may fall at his feet and seek to repent at that time and say how sorry they are, the time for repentance will have come to an end. There is a great day coming. Why is this important to Malachi? Why is this the way that it ends the Old Testament, God's revelation to his people again? As was pointed out last week, and I'm seeking to point out to you now, because the message of repentance needs to be resounded loudly among sinners. Because God's coming, and because we will face him. And because, you know, in 2019, though we may think that God is not really that concerned about our sin and He's not striking us with lightning bolts from on high because of the things that we do. And we may think that, oh, it really doesn't matter, and God's not really that full of wrath, and sin's not really that big of a deal. Friends, we need to remember the call of Malachi to Israel at this day. There is a day, and the day is coming, and the distinction on that day shall be severe. So repent. Turn from your sins and turn to the God of faithfulness. Love him, serve him, revere him, honor him, keep his words and his statutes that you should be prepared for his coming on that day. Now, as I said, this contrast continues with the theme. And so I want to try to show you three ways in which that day is shown to be a day of contrast. Number one, in verses one through three, we are reminded as it continues from verse 18, that it is a day both of destruction and delight. So on that day, verse 1, there will be destruction and delight. Look at what it says with regard to destruction. He begins there. He begins there because when he turns the page now to the people of God that delight on this day in his coming, like calves leaping out of the stalls, he is not going to return again to the wicked that are destroyed He is only going to focus on the people of God in their preparedness and by inference to those who are the opposite. But he begins with those who are not the people of God. For behold, the day is coming. Notice the definite article. It is the day, the great and terrible day of the Lord's 
final judgment and return, and it is coming. Not a day might come. It is sure. And it is not only a possibility. It is a guarantee. It is as if it is finished and it has happened. It has simply not yet been worked out in redemptive history because the day of its appointment has not yet come. But the day is coming. How has it come? First of all, burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers shall be stubble. That's the first picture that he paints. What is this business about the oven? Well, they didn't have gas and electric ovens in that day. That's not uh, news to any of you. But so one of the things they did for cooking purposes is they developed a way to get ovens very, very, very hot. I, I can only imagine, I've never seen a picture, but I've read several historical descriptions. They created these cylindrical clay ovens or pots that were two to three feet in length, and all I can picture is like a green egg, okay? This clay, uh, sort of thick-walled, ceramic, uh, insulated heat monster. And it's two to three feet in length. And often what they would do is they would utilize the insulating properties of the soil and of the earth, and they would bury them down into the ground with a small opening at the top. And they would light a fire... They would place coals and rocks, probably some sort of stone that would accept the heat that they had figured out. I'm not quite sure. In the very bottom, they would pile it up like coals, and then they would light a fire. And they would get that thing good and hot, but then they would take it away. And in this situation, they could get the pot or the oven down in the earth much, much, much hotter than they could get an open flame out on the ground. So that the result was they could cook very difficult things to cook that needed high heat like bread, okay? And so they could cook them for long periods of time. The heat would not be lost. These things would stay hot for long periods of time and they could cook them quickly and effectively because of the high heat that was there. Now the picture that's being painted here is that when Jesus comes back, it's going to be as if all of the evildoers like stubble. Now, stubble would have been simply what was left over. The language here is what was left over, like the chaff or the the stalks, the driest portions after the grains were harvested that remained in the field. What that means is it would have been ready to burn and it would have burned quickly. It would have burned hot. And you could only imagine if you gather up all of this chaff and all of this stubble that is so dry and you walk over to this just smoking hot oven and you drop it all down in there, it is going to be toast in a moment. That's the picture that's painted here, as dark as that may be. That on the day when the Lord returns, there will be no more time. It's immediate in its severity. And it is absolute in its destruction. For those evildoers, that, that it not, we're all evildoers in a sense. These are those intent on evil, opposing God's reign in their life, embracing the darkness because they hated the light, to use some of John's language, or again, those who continued habitually to walk in darkness because the light was not in them, those who did evil in this way, in arrogance against God, shaking their fist 
as the Pharisees we saw this morning in arrogant, willful unbelief. They shall be gathered up like stubble and incinerated in the oven of God's judgment. Now, this is not like the fire of judgment that we have seen previously back in, what was it, 3-2. Look at what it says, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will be bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. That's the way this kind of judgment comes upon the people of God. It's different and it's to purify them and make them acceptable to him and to bring them into his presence where they can offer sacrifices and righteousness. For those that have stood against him, the fires of his judgment burn like a hot oven and they shall be gathered up like the chaff and the stubble and placed in it only to their absolute and immediate destruction. Another picture is given, look at what it says, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, it says, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Another metaphor here pictured of a dead tree where the branches are cut off and tossed away, where the the very roots themselves are consumed because they have died and they have withered up and they have dried. Maybe they've been uprooted from the ground. It is very common for the people of God to be spoken of as a tree or an olive tree or a branch or a plant in this way. The picture here is for those that have opposed God, they shall also be like a tree, but there will be nothing left of them when the fires of God's judgment are upon them. Nothing. Not root nor branch. The second picture that's painted. And so you can see clearly that on this day, the distinction is made between those that love and serve God and those that stand in opposition to his kingdom. And for those that have stood against him, they shall be brought to destruction. But, verse 2, for you who fear my name, that is, revere me, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. What a contrasting picture. Now, scholars differ here on whether the emphasis is on son of righteousness or whether it's on son of righteousness. If it's on son, then the idea is that it is a metaphor. It is a reference to not the physical sun rising, but to the son, the Messiah, who rises in his righteous judgment and in his righteous judgment unto salvation. Remember John 9 this morning. For judgment I have come into the world, that the blind would be given sight and those who think they see would be blinded by the light. Okay? I don't think that that's as feasible as the emphasis being on righteousness. The idea here that the son of righteousness, the son seen as this, uh, this beacon of God's grace that gives light, and gives warmth, and brings growth to vegetation, and so forth, but that now at the dawning of Christ, at the end of the age, that God will arise and will be seen in utter righteousness. And it is in righteousness and equity that this judgment shall come. I think this is the better option because of those people in Malachi's day who have doubted Exactly these things, the righteousness of God, the justice of God. Think back to, is it 2.16? 
For the man who who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says to the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts, so so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Then in 3, 14 and 15, you have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking in his mourning? Therefore, the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Questioning the equity of God, the fairness of God, the righteousness and the judgments of God. You see that? Again and again, the people in Malachi's day had wondered, well, where is God? But if he's here, he's sure not fair. He's not judging the peoples with righteousness. And I think now Malachi is saying that on that day, for his people, they will see him as the beacon of light and grace and benefit And he will be so in utter righteousness and no one will be able to deny it. Both are possible. But look at the contrast. Here's the sun not burning them up, but providing to them life and light and healing, it says. Rise with healing in its wings, as opposed to those who are placed into the oven. Now look at the response. Those those who are placed in the oven meet only utter destruction but those who see the sun to rise in righteousness that have revered God and feared his name. Look at what it says in verse three. I mean, the end of verse two and end of verse three. They shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You know, I'm not a farm boy. That's, I hear chuckles. That's not a shock to most of you. Uh, but I am an outdoorsman. And the closest thing that I can think about is... In, in early fall, uh, when, when there are, not even really early fall, but maybe even in winter and into early spring when there are young deer that have, that have been birthed and they're coming out in the early morning sun, like out into a field, sometimes they just lose their minds and their legs are too long for them and they, they're, they're, they're clumsy and they sometimes stumble and fall because they are so giddy with joy almost, it seems like. I don't know if a deer can be joyful, but excitement because of the warmth of the sun and the, the beauty of the day and maybe the food that's been provided for them. Who knows? But they just jump and fight and prance and run around and drive the adults crazy sometimes. Anyone that has seen this sort of thing in deer, and I can only imagine that's something of what it is for a calf when he's released from the stall and he... He enjoys that freedom and he feels the warmth of the sun upon him and maybe from a cold night in the stall or something of that nature. But that's the picture that's painted here for us that we will be so gleeful and joy. We will be so delighted in the sun of God's grace and righteousness and justice and fairness and equity that we will run out into the field like a leaping calf before him, unable to contain our joy. What a contrast. Look at verse 3. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. Now the idea there is not that we will play any part necessarily. It is that because God has destroyed them, that no longer they shall tread upon us in opposition to his kingdom. Under the soles of your feet, on the day when I act, notice he says, when he does this, says the Lord of hosts. So the first thing on that day, there would be both destruction and delight. Secondly, 
on that day. Now, as I said, you're only going to see what it speaks of about the people of God, but by inference, we can understand something of the contrast between the people of God on that day, as is spoken of, and those who are not his people. There will be preparedness and there will be panic. On that day, there will be preparedness. Look at verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb, that is on the mountain for all Israel. So now Malachi turns to call the people of God to remember. So in light of this distinction, and in light of the impending day, the coming day of God's judgment, he wants them to remember the law of God. This remembrance is not intellectual recall. It is being prepared to act. So in other words, he wants them to remember in the sense of readying themselves to take action. To be willing to think about the law of God that you know so that you can act on the law of God that you know and not forget and forsake it in your life and thereby be prepared for the return of your king on that day. David Strain has said this, and I think that it's a good quote. He said, a Christian is someone who has been mastered by King Jesus. A Christian is someone who has been mastered by King Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this, that on the day of his arrival, there will not be time to be mastered. So you will either be those among the people of God who have been mastered by your king, who love his law and delight in his word and his commandments upon you are a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. They are the delight of your soul. And that will have been the progression of your life. Or on that day, having not been mastered, you will find nothing but panic. Do you you see the distinction that's, that's being painted? There will be no time to go and make those preparations. When I meet people who tell me that they are Christians, but they live lives of utter sin and depravity, and they do so willfully and willingly, I have often asked them, If you have no interest in the commands of God now and in doing what pleases Christ now, if you have no interest in the words of David Strain of being mastered by your king now, how miserable do you plan to be if you think you're going to go to heaven? The reality is, friends, they shall not. None of us will. For these kinds of evildoers, the New Testament makes abundantly clear, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And it's not teaching some sort of works-based righteousness. It is teaching the outworking of grace in our life is a righteous life of obedience where the law of God is freedom for us. And so what it says is he calls the people of God to be distinct and distinguished so that on that day, they will not be running around frantically panicking, seeking to appear as if they have been mastered by some king that they have not known. But he wants us now while there is yet still time to love the Lord and his commands, to live a life worthy of our calling in Christ so that when he appears, we would be prepared for his coming. 
Um, you know, it's a simple thing to say, and I, I don't know if it's totally right, but I, I, I think that I like it. But I, I've often heard, I, I've spent all of my life in churches, and I've often heard Baptist preachers say, don't be doing anything that you don't want Jesus to find you doing when he comes back. And on some level, that's helpful. You know how we are prepared for that day? Obedience. You know the covenant blessings of Christ for us? They are confirmed in us by obedience, covenant faithfulness. Who are we to say that we love the Lord if we continue to walk in darkness? The Apostle John says we're liars. And the truth and the light of Christ does not exist in us. And that's the distinction that he's pointing to here. Now the good news is, He's talking to people for whom the day has not yet come. So there is still hope to be mastered. There is still time to give themselves in absolute humility to the king. And he calls the people of God, look, if you're not ready, don't panic. Submit yourself to the king. So that when your king comes, you are ready for his appearing. So on that day, there will be preparedness and there will be panic. Notice also just an exegetical note. This is a very pertinent command for Malachi's day as it is for us. But even in what we've seen, because of all of the temporal and practical failures of the people of God during this time period, offering lame sacrifices and crazy divorces over ridiculous things and open marriages where they're taking multiple wives and pagan wives and the, the, the the, the dissolving of the family unit, all of these things with these disputations that have gone on and he finally comes to the end and he simply calls them to remember the commands that God gave them that when he shows up, they would be ready to receive him. That's a good word that needs to be resounded in 2019 in the church also. Thirdly and lastly, on that day, there will be reconciliation, and I don't have another R here, but and division. There will be reconciliation and there will be division. Look at verses 5 and 6. Behold, he says, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. In other words, if there was no reconciliation, you know, one of the things that happens when God reconciles us to himself, he reconciles us to one another. You can't claim to love God and to be reconciled with God if you hate God's people and you're not reconciled with them. Those things are incompatible. That truth is being expounded here. And so the, the, the lest I come and strike the land is not so much a threat as it would be the inevitable reality. That if there was no reconciliation among the people of God in the land with one another, it would be indicative that there had been no reconciliation between them and the God who loves them. Okay? And so he would have no choice but to come and strike the land. But so on that day, he promises that through the ministry of Elijah, there would be reconciliation in some form. We'll talk about what form it takes in just a moment. But who is this Elijah? Many commentators and scholars, they, uh, there's some debate about whether this is Elijah, who is to be the forerunner of the great day of the Lord at the second coming, And they distinguish between Elijah and John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the first coming of Christ. But I think that that's a failure on a couple of fronts. As one commentator pointed out, it doesn't take into consideration the short view, the truncated view that Old Testament prophets were given 
of the rest of redemptive history. Okay, so that they saw that in a much shorter time frame, it seems, than we did as well. And it doesn't take that into consideration. But more importantly than that, when you turn to Luke chapter 1, in verse 13, you can go there, but you know it well. When Gabriel announces the birth of John the Baptist to Zechariah, what does he tell him? Look, look, look over. He quotes directly from Malachi chapter 4. Let, let's, let's look there. Luke chapter 1. Verse 13, but the angel Gabriel said to Zechariah, do not be afraid for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John, that is John the Baptist. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will return and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. You see the same language there, don't you? Even declares that this John comes to do this work of turning turning the hearts of sinners to God, and then turning the hearts of children and parents that are wayward to one another, you see that this work of reconciliation that John the Baptist is sent for is said to be done in the spirit and work of Elijah. Spirit and power of Elijah. So I think this promise was realized in the ministry of John the Baptist, who came to prepare the way for Christ, who at his first coming set into motion the end period. Okay, the final period of redemptive history is now. Because once Jesus came and accomplished salvation for the church, then all we now wait for is the consummation of the age and the redemptive plans of God upon the earth that he would return again to judge the living and the dead. And so in one sense, you can see that before that great day came, he sends John the Baptist in the spirit of Elijah to preach this message of repentance that sinners would be reconciled with God and that there would be a trickle-down effect of that reconciliation to where they would be reconciled with one another. You see that. It's a day of reconciliation when it comes. But notice that uh, also a reference there if you're taking notes, Matthew eleven thirteen. Uh, Jesus said himself of John the Baptist that he is, quote, Elijah who is to come. Uh, so those things are important and are bearing, I think, in understanding this Malachi chapter 4. But now, what, is this, what does it mean when it says that he's going to turn the hearts of fathers to the children, to turn the children's hearts to their fathers? Is he speaking about some, I don't know, generalized, uh, you know, paternal dads and sons can't get along, and so they need to have their hearts turned to one another in this kind of familial uh, explicit reconciliation. I don't think that's the point. I think he chooses that family relationship because it was a quintessential relationship in his day of brokenness. And here's why. If you go back into what Malachi has already recounted, what was one of the main problems of sin in Israel that was destroying the covenant community? It was fathers taking inappropriate wives and forsaking the wife of their youth and straining the family relationships. So you can imagine now these fathers who are setting out and putting out and setting aside their children's mothers. 
You can imagine the children, the way that they felt about their fathers as they watched him take younger, more beautiful pagan wives in contradiction to what God had said. You can imagine, I mean, we see some of that in our own day now with the ease of divorce and with the ridiculousness that goes on sexually and immorally in the family unit, which in God's design came before the church and is the bedrock foundational core of society and of the church, the family. So that's disintegrating in Israel because of the actions of the fathers and the way that it's affecting the family. What is he saying? Well, in the spirit of Elijah, John the Baptist comes and he preaches repentance where the sinners can be reconciled with God. Let's think about those fathers. Even at the time of Elijah, there is evidence to show that those practices were still rampantly ongoing, even at the time and ministry of Jesus, who in the Sermon on the, on the Mount addresses what? The ease and the insanity of the divorce practices in Israel, Okay. So if that's continuing, now these same men are called by John the Baptist to be reconciled with God through faith and repentance. And because their sins have now been forgiven, they can be reconciled with their families. Children can be reconciled with God. And they no longer have to be bitter and angry at the sins of their parents and the failure of their parents. Okay? They can be reconciled to God and therefore reconciled to one another. And so I think he's simply painting, he's using the most immediate things around him, the the most broken relationships around him to say that the day of the Lord is a day of reconciliation for those who are reconciled with God. But for those who are not, there is only division to be found. You know what the hope is for families? By the way, those of you seeking to be counselors and family units, those of you who have any contact and counseling with and helping families that are struggling, look, take note. What families need is the gospel. Because until fathers and mothers and children are reconciled to God, there is zero hope that long-term they will be reconciled in a meaningful way with one another. There is a trickle-down effect by grace of this reconciliation that the church, the people of God, know and enjoy. And so on this day, actually prior to this day in God's grace, when the divisions are made final, he speaks about those who are the people of God and those who are not. And those who are the people of God are, have their hearts turned to love the Lord and have their hearts turned to love each other. That's why we have to love each other in here, because we're a family also in a different sense. We have to support one another, and we have to bear one another's burdens and all of those things. So, Malachi calls the people of God to repent. He calls the people of God to remember. He calls the people of God to delight in the day of the Lord that is surely coming. Do you look around at your life at times and wonder where God is, when God is coming, how this can possibly be a part of God's plans. I think we all do from time to time. But like the people in Malachi's day, may we listen to this word carefully as it came just before a long period of silence on God's part. That no matter what we may think and no matter how we may feel, the fact remains that God's promise to deliver us on that day and to destroy his enemies shall stand. May we be ready.
May we love his word and his law. May we keep his commands. May we love one another and his people. Ultimately, by by faith, may we be reconciled to God where we can delight in his grace like a calf leaping from the stall. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we do thank you for the grace that you've shown us in Christ and we pray that you would help us to live worthy of that grace. God, that we would indeed remember no matter how we feel and what we think, no matter what the circumstances of our life are around us, that you love us, that you keep us. God, that you are coming to get us but that that day will be a day of division. That there will be a final dividing between your church and everybody else. And for us, your people who love you and delight in your word and who fear your name and revere you and serve you, God, it will be a day of vindication and delight. But God, may we reflect carefully on the fact that for those who oppose you and arrogantly Uh, make their own rules for themselves and seek to be mastered by no one other than self. God, it will be a day of absolute destruction and division. God, impress that truth upon our hearts tonight as we seek to love you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.